Hello guys and the warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the true crime show that comes to you from the North Wales spare room of me, Paul, the true crime enthusiast of the show's title, seeking out the obscure and the not-so-familiar cases from around the UK and Ireland. It's great as always having you guys here, it's very much appreciated, and I hope that this episode finds everybody well. What's also much appreciated this week are the new Patreon supporters of the show, that's namely Claire Barnes, Lacey Maxwell, Brian Mulvaney, Angie S, Catherine Hughes, Amy Miller and Jay Losty and Unica S who've edited their existing pledges. I'm still playing catch up here a bit I know somewhat, I know it's been a few weeks for some but thanks so much for your support guys, it's very kind of you and it is, as I said, very much appreciated. And by the time this episode airs, I hope that you've had a chance to catch up with the 18 bonus episodes of the show that are out to date. I've also decided now, going onwards, that the bonus Patreon episodes may not just be limited to one a month. There'll be at least one, but I might chuck out an extra one every now and again, because I like having too much to do, really. They may not always be super long episodes, but I do fancy releasing some more if I come across a snippet of a case that I fancy sharing with you. I'm also working on some collaboration episodes with a couple of other UK true crime podcasts right now, shows that I'm a massive fan of and I've wanted to work with for a while. So watch this space, and when our stuff's ready to go, then I look forward to you guys hearing it, as I'm sure the other hosts do as well. This week then, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I'm still easing back into the swing of the new series, I think. I'm getting podcast match fit, if you like, because I've had the old issue of chopping and changing the episode order around somewhat. I must explain, I had the first few episodes of this series clearly earmarked and a different case than this one was actually picked out for episode two. But then I found new research materials available for that case that I had to order and and was waiting on at the time of writing. Plus I like mixing stuff up a little bit and so this episode finds something a bit different from the norm on the show. It's probably not as shocking a case as some and a bit more subtle than a lot of the other cases that we feature here but it is an interesting one nonetheless. Well I thought it was interesting and I hope you guys think the same. Now a later episode this series I've planned will feature a case of stalking. I'm sure that term needs no introduction whatsoever, does it really? And although it's quite a commonplace offence nowadays, it's thankfully much more recognised and taken much more seriously than it once was. And the episode coming up later in the series will feature an extreme example out of the many. It is still one that I need to fully research yet. Stalk the stalker if you like. But stalking or harassment is the focus of the episode today also. If you look at the case featured in this one comparatively against others, the offence that's examined here, it isn't up there with the extremes of your Mark Chapman's or your John Hinckley Jr's. There was no violence or loss of life involved at all here. But that is in no way to lessen the offences because what there was for the stalker's target was more than a year of unwarranted and unwelcomed attention that turned from nuisance to full-on harassment to cause an extreme concern and arguably object terror. The episode this week contains details of offences, including references of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always whilst listening. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at a case I've entitled Letters from a Fan. 
Jeremy Dyer was fond of female television presenters such as Gabby Yoroth or Natasha Kaplinsky and was especially excited when a new presenter appeared on Meridian Tonight, the local Evelyn news programme of Meridian, his regional television channel where he lived with his parents in the southern UK region of Kent. She was smart, she was attractive, but what got him the most was her voice the English vowels that were delivered with fluency, efficiency and beautiful articulation. He saw in the voice's owner, Sarah Lockett, an independent and focused woman, one whose confidence both attracted him, but was also a challenge to him. Although he was a smart fellow, but one never the top of his class at English, undaunted anyway, Jeremy decided to write a fan letter to Sarah Lockett, which he sent to her at the TV studios. The letter, which was filled with grammatical and spelling mistakes and typos, went along the lines of as follows. Dear Sarah, I don't want to offend you, but your new haircut makes you look like a boy. Oh well, it will grow back in a couple of months, so don't panic. I hope this letter does not offend you too much, as the aim of it is to invite you out for a drink, etc. I've already blown my chance, probably. My name is Jeremy, so don't forget it. I'm 28, I'm English, and a freelance writer on economics-related things. I will ring you at Meridian soon to invite you out. I'm assuming the Meridian show comes from Maidstone, but equally likely could be beamed from Spain, I suppose. If it is, why don't you have a suntan? Oh dear, I'm insulting you again. While I'm writing this letter, I'm watching you with a sound turned down as I'm listening to England v Morocco football on the radio but with your new haircut, you can become a footballer. Remember my name, you're going to be hearing a lot more from me. Yours sincerely, Jeremy D. This strange attempt at a date, by first insulting the object of your desire, who does that, was sent to Sarah Lockett at the Meridian Television Studios in Vinters Park in Maidstone on the 27th of May 1998. Strangely, and I swear I had no way deliberately scheduling this, exactly 21 years to the day that I was sat in my spare room writing the episode. Now if you're famous in almost any way, then you're going to get some form of fan attention. It's the reason that the screen, the music and sporting stars that we know get the adulation that they do, because they inspire people through this sporting prowess or... They become heroes to them because a certain song they may release or a role that they play resonates within a person who hears or sees it and it becomes a very fond memory for them. And this has gone on for many years through one form of another. It's always a constant thing but it's ever evolving. I mean, you can go from the famous footage of the Beatles being mobbed by thousands of screaming fans as they got off a plane more than 50 years ago now to as of May 2019 the 168 million Instagram followers that Cristiano Ronaldo has. 168 million, imagine that. eh? More often than not, these fans will be content to just quietly admire the heroes from afar, but sometimes they'll be such a fan that they feel that they have to reach out to their idols, write them letters or send them small but personal gifts, that kind of thing, purely because they think they're so wonderful. And this is fine, I'm sure many people listening here have had a selfie with a celebrity before now or joined a fan club or something. And I'm sure equally that many listening will have somebody famous that you admire from one walk of life or another. But occasionally, there are those people whose view of said celebrity becomes a bit warped and they begin getting a bit obsessive. 
The said celebrity ultimately begins to take over their every waking moment because they may not have anything near as fulfilling as this person in their own lives or they may have sub- even substituted the fantasy person for one in an imagined real-life relationship with them. The once harmless enough letters may get that much more constant and they may take on a darker and more sinister turn when the authors aren't fed with the attention that they crave from the subject. I mean, we know it happens, don't we? It's names such as John Hinckley Jr. or Mark Chapman, as I said before. They don't need any introduction, certainly, do they? The episode this week focuses more upon the slow-burning terror that a stalker can create rather than a dramatic act. There's no Beatles being shot or attacked here. Two of those are more than enough, really, aren't they? I found this one to be an absolutely remarkable story, and I thought it was exactly what we look for here on the show. So 32-year-old Surrey-born Sarah Lockett had just landed her biggest job in media to date. She was the new anchorwoman of Meridian Tonight, the kind of early evening news programme that you may often watch while you're having your tea depending on what time you have your tea, of course. I always used to get my mum to turn over so I could watch Quantum Leap, personally. What a fantastic show Quantum Leap was, eh? Tara had been a studious girl growing up in the Surrey village of Whitley with her brother and sister, and upon finishing school had accepted a place at Bristol University to study French and Russian, with a future in broadcasting always her chosen projected career path. Before landing the Meridian Tonight post, Sarah had worked her way up through various media roles towards this goal, including voicing several 0898 information numbers, telephone bingo slots and ski reports, a few local radio presenting slots, spent some time working in the BBC Newsroom South East, and a combination of reporting and presenting duties on various television stations and regions before in January 1998 she was chosen for a Meridian Tonight role. By that time Sarah had become very realistic and aware of the nature of the work that she did putting her in the public eye and had accepted the sometime well-meant intrusiveness of the watching public. Presenting the news is a very direct job after all, isn't it? Where you speak to the viewer watching at home as more or less the person that you are. You can be professional, but you're not like an actor playing a role. And people may latch on to this. You become a familiar and a constant to them. As a result, Sarah was used to getting letters from perfectly well-meaning people saying such things as, oh, we do love you on the TV, that kind of thing, you know? But not all of them had been as well-meaning. For example. Before she'd begun presenting on Meridian TV, she'd received a series of postcards from one viewer of a regional station that she worked at, who had clearly gleaned a thrill out of describing his sexual fantasies in them about hosing her down or other more hardened, offensive sexual practices that he would describe to her, calling her a saucy cow and adding childish sound effects such as slurp and gasp to his perverted narrative. Boggles the mind, doesn't it, really? Although these were unpleasant to read, Sarah just ignored them, but she did contact police when the author sent her a box of chocolates that was booby-trapped with a harmless toy snake. Police advised her not to take the matter any further, which she agreed to do, and the author eventually got tired of contacting her and ceased his lurid postcards. So when Sarah read the letter from Jeremy Dyer, She did find it a bit creepy, but she thought, well, I've had worse, and thought it no great cause for concern. However, three days later, Jeremy wrote to her once again, 
this time sending a two-page letter that outlined his projected career plans for her, advising her to move further up the career ladder and work for a different regional station, such as Carlton or London Weekend Television. It also took on an attempt at flirting with her or being suggestive. The letter went on. You seem to get a fairly good deal at Meridian anyway, as I don't see you at weekends, so you can stay in bed all day. I won't charge you for this valuable or useless, in brackets, delete as applicable, careers advice. Even if I did charge you, you could pay in other ways than money, see above, i.e. spending the weekend in bed, in brackets, as long as you don't expect any action during World Cup matches. So pretty cringeworthy, eh? He was just getting started. The letters were to continue regularly from here. Mostly they were rambling, disjointed narratives, as though he was thinking out loud on paper, or like every single script of a True Crime Enthusiast podcast episode. Signed as Jeremy, each letter was typed up on his home computer, and none were to contain any return address for him, because the author knew that by doing that, he'd just get a standard letter back that would curtail any correspondence and would shatter his illusions. He was more than happy imagining that Sarah was compliant in some sort of imaginary two-way relationship with him, which gradually he began to fill more and more with the pickings of his sexual fantasies. In the third letter, dated the 4th of June 1998, Jeremy christened Sarah with the nickname or a shortened version of it, that he would use frequently in his correspondence to her going forwards. In part of the letter, he asks how tall she was, and imagining her to be short, he describes her as a miniaturised supersonic pocket locket, which he adapted into just pocket locket from then onwards. Towards the end of the letter, he says, You can up the flirting on Meridian a notch. So far, you use different voice tones and stick your chest out every now and again. That's about it. Meridian seems to keep a very informal ship. Why don't you show your bra every once in a while or lick your lips suggestively? Do you dare do this on TV? Ooh, bit creepy, eh? Throughout the letters, and whilst most, as I said, would contain utter rambling nonsense and silver-tongued genius such as what I've just read to you, they would also include snippets of news and bits of information about himself. For example, the letter immediately following this one contained the information that he had worked in economics and had been considering doing a PhD in psychology at one time, but had never gotten around to it. And then it launched straight away into asking why Sarah doesn't have PhDs to making a quip about a sneaking a quick alcoholic drink during advert breaks. Rambling and disjointed like that. But in this letter he did admit for the first time that he was fully aware of the probable reaction Sarah was having to the strange correspondence. It reads, As you don't know me, I'll have to be careful what I write as you may think I'm writing to you from prison, hospital, mental hospital, and I'm not a very nice person. If I was going to send you death threats or other stuff, I would have done it by now. Okay, so now and again I write some sexy stuff to you, but this is fairly normal. If I didn't think you were worth it, I wouldn't waste my time writing to you. Rest assured, you would probably be quite pleased if you saw me as I'm okay. I'm someone you would flirt with if I caught your eye in a restaurant, that kind of thing. I have quite a high opinion of myself, and I get the impression that you have quite a high opinion of yourself. This is good. I really have got two degrees, you know, not that that probably impresses you. I think I'm a great lover and good with women. 
and you're still not impressed. Now I wonder why anybody wouldn't be impressed with that, I really do. Then gifts began arriving for Sarah at the studios, several boxes of chocolates or mug and several little trinkets, all of which Sarah was later to admit that she placed onto the communal table in the office with an invite for whoever wanted them to just feel free and take them. And they did go of course, because who in an office would honestly leave chocolate just lying about there, I ask you? Me and my work colleagues absolutely demolish things like that that we bring in or are given in mere minutes. It's funny that I've got a tooth left in my head. I really is, I tell you. So these gifts kept coming and so did the rambling letters. Although the contents of these letters were entirely one-sided and none were replied to, it still didn't stop Jeremy inventing Sarah's part in them and he began sending us scripts of imagined conversations between the two. The following is an example from a letter less than three months after the first initial contact. Question and answer sheet. Sarah asks, why do you send me all these letters and presents when you don't even know me? Jeremy replies, because I think you're attractive and I'm interested in you. Sarah asks, will you ever ring me or come to the Meridian Studios? Jeremy replies, yes. The idea is to take you out a few times and get to know you, maybe over a drink or cinema, whatever. Sarah asks, but you'd probably want a relationship with me and it would be embarrassing and it would all go wrong. Jeremy replies, I just think you're a nice enough person to want to spend some time with, not necessarily anything further. Sarah asks, but why would I ever go out with you? You might be dangerous. Jeremy replies, well I'm not. Of course, your safety is of paramount importance to you, but you could bring someone with you or check out who I am beforehand or even tell the police where you are or who you're with in case you're worried. Sarah asks, but you write all this sexual stuff. You must be weird. Jeremy replies, you're attractive. That's a good enough reason to write sex stuff. I just can't write you things like what library books I've read recently. That's boring. Sarah asks, Why don't you ever give me your surname or address? Jeremy replies, What's the point? You don't need to know them. Sarah asks, Will you stop stalking me? Jeremy replies, No, I haven't even managed to find Meridian Studios on a map yet. I know it's somewhere near New Hythe train station, I think. Anyway, I'm a nice guy, not a criminal. Sarah asks, Are you really a fantastic lover? Jeremy replies, Yes. Jeremy asks, Sarah, do you deserve someone as fantastic as I am? Sarah replies, yes, I'm attractive and I've got a nice figure. So you'd not be creeped out by that at all, eh? What an oddball. There were many more of these types of conversation to come, representing not only what he hoped or imagined Sarah may ask him or think of him, what he preferred to imagine, she would say, but they also gave him chance, in his mind anyway, To plead his case and how he was actually a good catch, was attractive, and despite all the other stuff that he'd written, was harmless. Yeah, harmless. I'll leave you guys to your own thoughts there about that. Not narcissistic at all, in any way, shape or form. Then he'd follow up his harmless type cheeky chappy letters, in his mind anyway as I said, with other offerings in letters, such as a handwritten postcard, contained in an envelope with a note which contained the offering, There is some sex stuff in here, so beware. Not much, but a bit. Dare you read it, you might like what you read. 
He then apologises for sending the crude card, but he says he's in the mood to send this kind of thing, and then actually asks if being stalked sexually excites Sarah, which he hopes does. The letter then contains a fantasy containing very explicit, perverse and misogynistic references that I see no reason to repeat here. I'm sure you can use your imagination. And a boxed off paragraph explaining that he's writing this card in the early hours of the morning whilst trying to finish a university assignment. It claims, I still have 1,000 words to write and less than 9 hours to hold my life together. I don't even have time to write on this card. My worlds are colliding. Remember, Sarah, you're my biggest secret. Very telling of the state of Jeremy's mind, it then finishes with a poem. Remember me without ill thought, and I'll remember you. To stalk you is a pleasure, and I hope you think so too. The letters regularly continued like this, filled with disjointed ramblings about how wonderful he saw himself as, confident descriptions of himself, his looks, his build, his accomplishments, or random tangents about crap that he would go off on. Sometimes they were filled with what he classed as romantic or poetic notions, but the more often than not when you read them, the only voice you can imagine them being in is Alan Partridge's. But more often than not, there was also this constant underlying reference to sex, and he began behaving in his letters as though Meridian Tonight was being screened for him personally, with Sarah performing especially for him. He talked about certain items of clothing that she'd worn on a particular broadcast that had excited him, or ways that she swivelled in a chair that he could enjoy particular views of her breasts from. Occasionally in his letters, he commented upon or gave other female presenters praise in an attempt, supposedly, to make Sarah jealous. Yeah, I'm sure she was crushed with that, mate. One letter included a lengthy description of the points of appeal about him, how good-looking he was and his phenomenal skills as a lover, along with a photo sheet of six women, among them Sarah, TV presenters Gabby Yoroth and Natasha Koplinski, and his own ex-girlfriend, where the author gave each woman marks out of ten in categories such as sex appeal or personality. You can imagine, can't you? Yeah, Sarah didn't get full points here. Full points was reserved for his ex-girlfriend. But it was ultimately aimed for Sarah's benefit with her solely in mind, because it ended with the line, Just trying to keep you on your toes. Believe or disbelieve whatever you want or don't want from the above. You will definitely meet me sometime anyway when I get bored of letters, etc. Quite chilling, eh? Now my heart goes out to anyone who has unwelcome detention such as this, and having never been in a situation myself, thankfully, touch wood, I can only imagine the mental stress and fear that something like that must put you under. It must be that much more scarier as well if you can tell from the narratives that you're reading that the author obviously has half a brain, yet there's something so missing from their life that they feel the need to come out with these random, disjointed ramblings to someone that more often than not they've never met. Sarah, to her credit, tried to ignore these letters as we've said, Perhaps she didn't even read each letter in full and was spared some of it, but it must have been proper mentally taxing and highly stressful for her nonetheless, and would have impacted upon her in subtle, at first, perhaps even subconscious ways. I mean, just imagine it affecting your choice of what you wore, for example. If someone you didn't know, but who was obviously uncomfortably obsessed with you, and commented upon a particular item of clothing that you wore that sexually excited them, then would you wear it again? Probably not. 
I wouldn't anyway. And that's the mental assault that these people perform on their target. But for Sarah, although it was upsetting, there were at least just letters and gifts. Until August 1998. Late one night in August 1998, Jeremy put his bike on a train and got off at Maidstone East Station, then cycled down to the Meridian Television Studios and surprisingly easily managed to get into the building. He just waited around outside until the cleaners arrived, and when they were buzzed in by security, he just tagged along inside behind them. However, he didn't get any further than the studio's reception area, where he openly admitted to the on-duty security guard that he was waiting to see Sarah Lockett, with whom he had an appointment. He tried to speak to a colleague of Sarah's, Sue Kinnear, who walked past, but he was stopped and ejected from the building, although he did hang around outside for some time afterwards. In his next letter to Pocket Locket, as he referred to her now, he told her, She didn't want to speak to me. In fact, I think she was a bit scared. She asked one of the security guys to walk her to a car. This is not the idea or image I want to put across. I don't think I'll visit the studio again. Not that it was easy to get to the bloody place anyway. I had to cycle ages to get to Maidstone East Station. In fact, he was to visit the studios twice more shortly after this letter, and was threatened with arrest each time if he didn't leave. Yet he seemed in a warped way to feel that his visit made him something special, and that far from being creeped out, Sarah may actually have been flattered by the attention. Rather than flattered, Sarah was actually escorted to her car each night by security following this. A letter sent to her shortly after these visits asks, Do you like someone giving you this attention like I am? Every celebrity needs a stalker. Oh well, there are good stalkers and bad stalkers, and you, my dear, are lucky enough to get a good one who buys you nice presents and writes you nice things. This is very much an interactive stalking case with these letters, etc. It doesn't do your image much harm to have someone stalking you like this. Maybe the other presenters are jealous because no one stalks them around. Don't worry, supersonic pocket locket. God gave you a nice face and a nice stalker. He'd also now begun ringing the Meridian Studios constantly, attempting to speak to Sarah but never getting any further than the switchboard, who were aware of the letters of course, apart from once being able to speak to the senior editor of Meridian Tonight, Lloyd Bracey, who of course fielded off his request to speak to Sarah. Yet it seemed shortly after this that Jeremy was about to cease his campaign completely. In reality, he was going to university in Warwickshire to undertake a teacher training course. He explained this in his latest letter to Sarah. This will mean I won't see you ever again, or until I move back to Kent, in brackets, if I ever did. I suppose this is the best way to part. The letter continued with an explanation that he'd contacted the studios to try and talk to her, and that he didn't expect to have to go through the editor to find out if he could. Then it contained another question and answer session, along the lines of the one we heard earlier in the episode, but this one more geared to an imaginary conversation they'd have, where he outlined that he would cease all contact if he was asked to. Just before he left to go to his course, He wrote to Sarah once again in September 1998, ostensibly for the last time, and this time he included his name, his address and his telephone number. He wrote, I'm going away now so I won't be writing to you anymore, 
but if you want to write to me, I'm going to take a bold move and give you my name and address. So if you want to report me to the police, it's all up front. I can't be a stalker now, can I? So this relieved Sarah no end, as she was to later sell. I thought, if he does anything dodgy in the future, we know who he is. So I felt a lot more reassured, and I sent him a letter back saying, Thank you for your interest in the programme. I hope you don't mind if I ask you not to contact me again. We're a very busy newsroom. So he wrote a letter back saying, Fine, it was a bit of fun. I hope you didn't mind. I won't write to you anymore. And she could have been forgiven for believing that Jeremy had complied with this and had indeed given up. There was nothing for the rest of September or October, even through November. Gone back into the woodwork or moved on to a new pastime, something like that. And then during the lead up to Christmas, a box of sweets arrived at the Meridian Studios along with a lengthy handwritten letter which read in part... The reason I haven't written to you for so long is basically because it's good for me to separate my course, i.e. now and Christmas, and being silly writing you letters and sending you presents etc. Do you see now? You are kind of my holiday project. As I have two weeks off from my Warwick course, I can spend time writing to you etc. I can't be bothered to whilst at university, because if I can't see you on Meridian, then it's as if you don't exist I suppose. I went to Maidstone yesterday where I posted the sweets to you from and I've decided to write the rest of this in the form of a fictional story. One day a man went to Maidstone with a pocket TV and his little binoculars. In Maidstone he bought some chocolates which he posted to a pretty lady who was a TV presenter. Anyway, realising that she would be presenting the 1015 News on the 22nd of December 1998 he thought up a plan of how to see her without disturbing the pretty lady. So he got on the choo-choo train to New Hythe and pedalled off on his bike when he got off the choo train. After about five minutes, he arrived in Meridian Land. It was about five to ten. He knew the pretty lady was close by, so he hid somewhere in case she saw him and told Mr. Clark, the evil king. He was well prepared with his pocket TV and binoculars to see the pretty princess when she left Meridian Land after the news. And after waiting a while in the secret place, watching the princess on his pocket TV, he saw her come out of the Meridian Land palace and walk across to a little black sports car. Then she zoomed off as quick as can be. The man then talked to the sentry at Meridian Land briefly before biking away. What do you think of the story? Okay, so I was being a bit devious, but never mind. At least I'm keeping you fully informed. You see, this is a two-way exchange. You know exactly what I'm up to. Anyway, it was a bit cold, so I won't do that again. Also, I had to cycle for ages to get back to Bloody Maidstone, but at least it didn't rain much. However, it was a total success, as I was undetected by anyone. How much can I trust you, darling, to tell you all this? Please don't let me down pocket lock it as this is just a bit of fun. This bit of fun letter also contained a sketched map showing exactly where in the car park Sarah's car was parked, complete with accurate details of her movements from the studio and an arrow marking exactly where he'd hidden. It was accurate to a T and ended by saying that the data, as he referred to it, must be treated in the strictest confidence highlighted in capital letters only to be disclosed to Sarah Lockett as part of Lockett Watch Briefing, no one else. 
Sarah must have been absolutely crushed by receiving this letter and by now somewhat nervous because it was possible that he may be able to trace her now through her car number plate and it was certainly considered that he would try. Police later discovered that Jeremy, wrongly believing that Sarah lived in Hastings, had even bought a copy of the Hastings electoral roll to try and obtain her address. The episode will continue after a short word about this week's sponsor of the show. I'm pleased to announce that the episode this week is sponsored by Away Travel, creating thoughtful products that are crafted with features that solve real travel problems and make your journey so much more seamless. They were kind enough to send me a case for my own travels, which I was proper bowled over with and which I'll tell you about shortly. What's also kind enough of them is that Away are offering listeners of the show a $20 discount on one of their cases during checkout with free shipping to the contiguous United States, Europe and Australia simply by visiting www.awaytravel.com and using the promo True Crime during checkout. Simple as anything, that, eh? So let me tell you some more about Away. Catering for different travel styles, Away cases come in assorted colours and with a range of unique personalisation offerings available, including hand painting. There are two different sizes of case, created with strong, flexible polycarbonate and anodized aluminium that help it last the lifetime it's designed for, while still keeping it looking durable and lightweight. Each is secured with built-in TSA-approved combination locks, and the feature that I loved personally about it, there's an optional ejectable battery on the case with multi-ports to keep you charged whilst you're on the move. It's very cool, and it looks very sleek. Inside, I was just as impressed. It's roomy enough to already fit the basic stuff that you think you need for your trip in, but the built-in compression pad helps you pack just that bit extra for your own peace of mind. It's amazing. There's also what I thought was the lovely touch of a multi-adapter with assorted attachments that will keep you charged in up to over 150 countries worldwide included with it and catering for everything, there's even a removable laundry bag within to separate your dirty clothes from your clean ones and a canvas dust bag to store your case in when you're not off jet-setting with it. So already sounds pretty ace, doesn't it? Well, Away carry-ons are designed specifically to comply with worldwide airline regulations and requirements, so you haven't got any worries about carrying them onto any flight that you get on, and each comes with a limited lifetime warranty, so should the case or any part of it break, Away will repair or replace the whole thing, no worries. Also, if you get one, test it out and you think, it's not for me really, well, you're getting a 100-day trial with an Away product, which means you can return any non-personalised carry-on for a full refund. If you think to yourself, wow, this I've got to see, then why don't you go and have a look for yourselves? You can shop everything Away at their stores in New York, Austin, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, there's even one in London. So for this fantastic offer, a fabulous product, an offer of free shipping and a $20 discount at checkout, just visit www.awaytravel.com, use the promo TRUECRIME at checkout. Getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. We will now resume the episode, Letters from a Fan. Following this three-month hiatus from writing to her, the letters began again with regular frequency. Sometimes they'd be clearly written after the author had had alcohol and would tend to be more aggressive and overtly sexual in nature, 
whereas at other times they were filled with the usual pointless ramblings and constant deluded justifications about why he was a good stalker. As well as juvenile smut and coarse remarks about Sarah's looks and body, there would also be the familiar lists or imagined conversations between Sarah and him. For example, in his final letter of 1998, he went on for ages about finding out which jacket Sarah wore when presenting that showed off her breasts most favourably, to then including the following bullet-pointed, quite unbelievable list. Advantages of having a stalker. They send you nice presents, they flatter you with nice letters, you can see having a stalker as a status symbol of your celebrity level, you can brag about having a stalker and make others jealous if they don't have one, you can rely on them to protect you where necessary. Disadvantages of having a stalker They may send you offensive or threatening letters, they may send you presents such as dead animals, razor blades, broken glass etc, they may plan to kidnap, rape or kill you, they may try to get you in trouble with your work, adverse publicity damaging your image or your career, they may burgle your house, they may insult or humiliate you to your colleagues, they may follow you around making scenes in public etc embarrassing you. Jeremy then admitted in the letter that he knew there were more disadvantages than advantages to having a stalker but that was okay because he was after all a good stalker. Yet he claimed it did Sarah no harm to remind us some of the nasty and evil things that a bad stalker did, as if by then she wasn't thinking of just that like, you know, and that she should be grateful that she had a considerate and good stalker like himself. There wasn't much chance of a happy new year that one for Sarah because this guy was growing more and more delusional and had started turning up again at the studios, only this time he was watching them from a hidden vantage point. He was still writing to her constantly, and granted, the body of most of the letters wasn't offensive in any way. It just consisted of inane shit about what he'd had for tea the previous evening, or conversations he'd had with his parents, or his coursework, that type of thing. But most of the letters, as we've said, contained at least some hint or reference of a sexual nature towards Sarah, and each one contained at least in some part, some longer than others, a keen attempt to stress how much of a good stalker he was. It was as though he was trying to justify what he was doing more to himself, really. Yet if there were attempts to stress that he was a good stalker, which which obviously can't exist because of the very wording of the term, the sheer consistency of his doing so was, by its very definition, stalking, and more frightening. Saying stuff like, You're fine, if I'd wanted to kill you I already would have, isn't really very reassuring, is it? So clearly a deluded and obsessive man, he did on the surface appear very self-reflective though, and several letters would contain lines such as This is becoming one-sided, there's no interaction between us, just watching you on telly and stalking you part-time, or Darling Sarah, your safety lies in the law, I question whether I love you or could, it's probably a bad point in my character that I could be obsessed with a woman I have still never met. And then once again he went quiet for a period. Then on the 8th of March 1999. Hi, guess what? I've just discovered an interesting thing about your name. If you reverse the name Sarah it becomes harass. That's only one letter away from the word harass as in harassment. Reading it out loud sounds exactly the same. Harass Sarah. 
My true purpose is finally revealed to me. Harass Sarah. He was back in Kent at Easter that year, and because he was obviously able to watch Sarah constantly on the television again, their liaison, as he saw it, resumed with a flourish, and the letters began again in earnest. Later in March, one letter acknowledges that Sarah may now understandably be questioning his state of mind, you think? And he goes on to list 14 points about himself, which he invited her to categorise into negatives or positives, to see which predominates, he claimed. Most of them were his usual boasts about his sex appeal and his love-making prowess, Ken Barlow, know your role. But number 7 and 14 in his list gave particular cause for concern. They were respectively, I have fantasised about becoming a serial killer and I'm probably sociopathic. A separate note included read, Another idea I had was to give you an opportunity to get rid of me. This is your chance to get rid of your annoying stalker or to show that you don't mind me writing to you etc. So if you, in brackets Sarah Lockett, wear your blue jacket with a split down the front on Meridian tonight on Friday the 9th of April, I, in brackets Jeremy, will stop all contact with you forever. If you don't wear it, I will continue to write forever. It's not that I'm forcing you to make a bad move or that I'm even forcing you to make a decision. All I'm doing is giving you an opportunity to decide things for yourself. Your views are valid and to be respected as are mine. Okay, that's the end of our strategy meeting. Yet a cartoon drawing of Sarah that was also contained within the letter showed exactly that he was kind of forcing a hand because it depicted a contemplative Sarah with a large thought bubble which weighed up the outcomes and risks of either wearing or not wearing the jacket. I'm sure you guys can think for yourselves what these were. But just a couple of days before the deadline he'd issued her, on Wednesday the 7th of April, Jeremy saw something on Meridian tonight that was a major shock to him. Sarah was wearing a ring on her engagement finger, for her boyfriend Peter had just proposed to her and she'd accepted. It compelled Jeremy to write, I'm questioning whether I want to continue contacting you, especially as I noticed a ring on your finger. Are you engaged or was it a wedding ring? Or is it some other kind of ring? It seems that things have changed since Christmas. If you've got engaged or married, I suppose congratulations are in order, even though it depresses me to think of you with a man. Maybe it is the right time to stop contacting you. The fact that you would be married or engaged changes the situation greatly. It depresses me to think that you would have sex with a man. Even though I don't know you, ultimately your life is none of my business whatsoever though. This is the mind of a stalker. I hope you're happy, I suppose, even if I would enjoy it if your fiancé died by falling into some acid or getting eaten alive by maggots. Think of these words and think of me feeling sad. For nearly one year I've loved every inch of you, but from today I will always hate one of your fingers, the one that holds your ring. I've just rung Meridian. Your switchboard operator has told me you got engaged a couple of weeks ago. I expect you will marry in the summer. I guess you'll no longer be presenting the late Meridian news. This saves me the bother of turning up at Meridian Studios again. It's no coincidence we've never met Sarah. I know when you present and when you don't present. I saw you leaving the studios at Christmas from my stalking centre at UK Paper across the road from Meridian Studio. Remember, you look much more beautiful when you're not wearing that ring. 
It didn't put him off his project for long though, because just two days after this, he rang the Meridian newsroom with a spoof news story about a woman named Sarah from Maidstone who'd got a piece of metal stuck on her finger. Then he wrote a strange, strange even for his standards, letter, in which he proposed a list of aliases for himself, characters with a full definition and description of each. These were namely Mr Chuckles, a lunatic with an obsession for clowns, the cleaner, who was a James Bond type assassin, and Mr John Charles, a London East End gangster type. Each individual proposed alias, alongside himself Jeremy, had a fear factor rating, a sex appeal and intelligence rating, and a mentally ill score out of 10. Unsurprisingly, on what you'd perceive as the positive score points in this kind of nutter top trumps, the intelligence and sex appeal categories, guess who scored highest on these? I bet you can't. This letter provoked a response written to Jeremy from the regional editor of Meridian Tonight, Lloyd Bracey suggesting that should he persist in these unwanted communications, the company would not hesitate in involving the police. Jeremy completely ignored this letter and instead responded to Sarah. In this letter he moaned basically that he'd not done anything malicious and tried to play down or trivialise his campaign with the use of one of his favoured bullet-pointed lists, completely ignoring the fact that his many letters, calls, gifts and visits to the studio amounted to stalking. Although he told Sarah in it that he was going back to Coventry and for her to enjoy a summer, he finished the letter by telling her that he would be employing someone to record and post to him in Coventry all of her April, May and June Meridian Tonight broadcasts on the pretense that he would claim it was for a University of Warwick news database and someone was required as a regional news contributor or gatherer for the Kent region. He was especially proud of this plan and he considered it to be foolproof. He told how he was also thinking of sending his stalker's assistant, who was an unsuspecting bloke called Ian, to go to the Meridian studios on the pretense of obtaining photographs and publicity material for the database. And this wasn't an idle boast either. Jeremy had indeed placed an advertisement in the local newspaper advertising for such a service and Ian had answered, complying with a detailed itemised list of broadcasts that Jeremy required recording. On top of the £30 per week that he paid Ian to record these, he also covered the postage costs of sending him the tapes in Coventry. He then pointed out in the letter the fact that he couldn't guarantee she wouldn't hear from him at some point over the summer and amused over the fact that through all of his phone calls there and visits to the Meridian studios she was one of the few people at Meridian that he hadn't actually spoken to and then left her a telephone number where he could be reached through the university switchboard. He even had the nerve to end the letter by saying Please do not abuse the information you have about me. As I say, I was very disappointed in you. It wasn't very nice to receive a letter mentioning the police. In fact, I will send you a copy of the letter in case you didn't see it. Then on the 26th of April 1999, something happened which Sarah's case was to be eventually linked with in subsequent press reports. The murder on a Fulham doorstep of Crime Watch UK presenter Jill Dando. Now Jill Dando's murder is a crime that I'm sure many listeners are familiar with and so I'm not going to rehash it here but if you aren't familiar with it then I can recommend both Caprice at the Unseen podcast and Bethon and Mark at Seeing Red 
show friends of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast that have both covered the Dando case in great detail in some great episodes that are well worth listening to. Of course, when Jill Dando was killed, it was massively publicised. Every single angle and theory was speculated at as to who could be responsible for it and why, and inevitably, there was and remains much speculation that it could be a stalker who was responsible for a murder. As a result of this line of inquiry, several people with an unhealthy interest in her were found and spoken to during the investigation. To Jeremy Dyer, it was more than enough that it was a news presenter that had been killed, and he often felt the need to air his feelings about the subject in his subsequent correspondence to Sarah, or to just go on about the Dando murder in warped fascination or sick detail. For example, one letter shortly after a murder, in part, says, My feelings are that if the murderer was a contract killer, he behaved quite bizarrely, hanging around for an hour beforehand. Also, why does he have to be a contract killer to shoot her through the head? Any idiot could do it, e.g. the cleaner who I told you about. Maybe it was a stalker, but psychologists have said stalkers never kill this stalky, or if they did, it would be in a more passionate, emotional or frenzied way. This is probably true. Why shoot someone through the head? Who knows? I can't say I'd ever want to stalk Jill Dando. She wasn't anything special to me. You looked a bit miserable on the Monday show. I suppose you would be considering Jill Dando just got her brains blown out by a probable stalker. Oh well, never mind as they say. He added a handwritten PS to this letter also, which read, By the way, I've worked out a theory on why Jill Dando was murdered. 1. Jill rhymes with kill. 2. Dead rhymes with head. 3. She used to read news bullet-ins. Simple when you've got the right kind of mind. Kill Jill dead with a bullet through the head. Police were contacted for the first time as a result of the Dando references, but Dyer was eliminated from their inquiries and was left to carry out his harassment pretty much unabated. Letters would frequently contain some reference to Jill Dando's murder after this, ranging from weird lists as you'd just heard, to rhymes such as Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill got shot by a stalker. By this time it was June 1999 and Sarah was dismayed to find the latest letter from Jeremy on her own doormat at home. It took a few sickening moments of fear, thinking that he'd ultimately discovered where she lived, before she realised that it was correspondence that he'd sent to her old university that they'd forwarded on to her, although a compliment slip from the university enclosed with a letter assured her that no personal details had been divulged to the author, and then asked her if she would wish not to receive any other forwarded mail. It was a short letter, written as though it was innocent communication from an old friend, but with the overall purpose to demonstrate to Sarah his ability and determination to find new ways of contacting her, that he was relentless, and that he could reach her anywhere. These new ways included the form of jokes that were sent to Sarah's co-presenter at Meridian Tonight, Jeff Clark, offering him free magic props for a trick involving sawing someone's head off. It invited him to get a presenter colleague to practice the trick on him, but asked him not to blame them if they got the trick wrong and really did saw his head off though. It was signed Simon Talker. And then of course the sexual references continued in all forms. 
Jeremy would write to Sarah listing various pornographic websites that he'd accessed, in which he described different women in thinly veiled references to Sarah and their actions that had excited him. At other times he'd write as though he was a child and contained humorous, in his mind anyway, sexual references for an example being Dear Sarah, I am five years old, I like your jelly bumps. My dad likes your jelly bumps too. My mum doesn't like your jelly bumps though. I went to school today and played with my toys when I got home. I did sums at school. 5 equals 7 plus 12. I am good at sums. I saw you on TV. My dad says he'd make you come, but I don't know what he means. Love from Jeremy, age 5. Yeah, hmm. He then sent a massively thick envelope of more than 60 pages of typed writings and handwritten notes to Sarah at the Meridian Studios, in which he wrote, I'm enclosing some stalker stuff from the net. Hope you find it interesting reading. I've concluded that you don't really mind having me around. Good. As I've always said, you have nothing to worry about from me. Just don't write everything horrible to me or call the police and everything will be lovely. I've just heard on the radio that police believe the gun in the Jill Dando murder was purchased in a Midlands pub. Oh no, the police are onto me. The relationship we have is strictly stalker and victim rather than boyfriend-girlfriend. As I've said, I enjoy having you as an obsession, someone to stalk, etc. Whether you like this or not is really irrelevant. Stalkers are selfish, of course, and are motivated by self-interest. This doesn't mean that I will want to insult or hurt you. I don't. I like you. I wouldn't become a malicious stalker, as this means I would be wasting money and time contacting someone I hated. If I hated you, I wouldn't bother to contact you at all. The bottom line is that even though I write you nice letters and send you presents, etc., you can never afford to take me for granted. Ultimately, you're dependent on my maintaining goodwill towards you. There's no reason why I should lose this, though. It's for you to make sure you do not upset me as I have no intention of upsetting you. Even though we may be stalker and victim, I like to think you're happy enough with me and that you can enjoy being stalked a bit. I hope you enjoy reading the serial killer stuff. I'll write one for the cleaner soon. If you think it's sick, well, never mind, it is sick, and so am I. But what do you expect from me? Just be pleased that I'm not malicious towards you and you can continue with your life in perfect peace. Jill Dando's death seems totally pointless. If I was stalking Jill Dando, I would have. Then he writes this next part in Dingbat's type, the picture and symbols font, you know. Kidnapped her or done something else to her rather than shooting her through the head. How can you enjoy shooting someone in the head unless you hate them, of course? It seems a waste of a victim if you ask me. He could have used it before killing her, e.g., and again in Dingbat's font, raping or assaulting her, getting his money's worth as it were. This is as honest as I can be, Sarah, telling it as I see it. The letter then contained a cut-out set of paper underwear, a photograph of himself with a head cut off, and several pages of pornographic imagery under the heading Serial Killer Profile Number 2, Sarah Lockett. It mostly describes necrophilia in perverse detail. It again rates his different aliases at a 10 for these practices and then switches back to casual chit-chat, rambling on about his university time. He enclosed a map of Strathclyde University 
and a picture of Ian Brady's birthplace, Rotten Row Maternity Hospital, which he'd marked Brady born here and noted it. Even when I tell you normal things, it seems we can't get away from mass murder. There was also a multitude of notes, drafts of letters to the regional editor of Meridian Tonight, attempting to explain away his actions and justifying that he'd never had anything but positive thoughts towards Sarah. Then there were scribbled notes referring to Sarah's fiancé Peter, where he planned to track down where he worked and pose as an ex-colleague of his. To what purpose, the notes didn't say. But it was the last note in the package, perhaps placed in amongst the other crap of notes and prep by mistake, but most likely, I think, to invoke a deliberate reaction that caused the most alarm. It read, In the summer I promise to come and visit you somewhere. I'm looking forward to the summer. I will return, definitely. Come summer 99, you're mine. When I come back with my chalk, I'll teach you a lesson. In the summer, I'll come looking for you. Finders keepers, losers peters. Police were finally contacted after this, and with the Jill Dando references that they'd been told about before, and the ominous threat about Summer 99 in this latest package, they arrested Jeremy Dyer for harassment in the staff room of a school in Coventry where he was working as a trainee teacher. The search of his accommodation revealed a multitude of further unsent letters and notes addressed to Sarah, several newspaper clippings about the Jill Dando murder, a legal textbook concerning harassment laws marked up pages detailing stalking legislation, and a guide Dyer was writing himself on how to be a successful stalker. A kitchen knife was found placed on top of these documents. He was brought down to Kent for interview where he admitted contacting Sarah Lockett over a period of 13 months. All correspondence from him, some 80 different letters in all, had been kept at the Meridian Studios, so he could hardly deny it really, could he? It took police more than two days to read through fully the amount of correspondence that he'd sent to Sarah. He was, however, completely ruled out of the Jill Dando investigation as a possible person of interest. In December 1999, 30-year-old Jeremy Dyer appeared at Maidstone Crown Court charged with harassment under Section 4 of the Protection from Harassment Act and threatening to kill Sarah Lockett. He pleaded guilty to harassment of her over a 13-month period, but was, however, cleared of threatening to kill her, which he denied anyway, after the jury failed to reach a verdict during his five-day trial. At his trial, he was asked why he had chosen Sarah Lockett to stalk, and he said that he'd tried to get into stalking television presenter Gabby Yorath, but he didn't fancy her enough to do so. Dyer said it was something about Sarah's voice rather than how she looked. It was personal, he said, the same way that you would fall in love with someone. He claimed once again that he'd never meant to upset Sarah, rather that he thought she would be interested to receive his letters, but he admitted that he was stalking her, and he knew that what he was doing was criminal, but he couldn't stop himself. Even during the trial, when he got to see Sarah in the flesh each day, everyone could see just how fixated upon her he still was. Born in 1970, Dyer grew up in the Kent town of Ashford, the only child of a respectable family. Described as distant and oddly behaved as a teenager, Jeremy shied away from making friends with people of his own age, and especially struggled building relationships with the opposite sex. A classic social misfit, 
He dressed unfashionably and sloppily and never seemed to fit in anywhere. Yet he had a keen mind when he applied it and he did quite well in his studies. His qualifications included a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's degree in Economics, but he never quite managed to transfer this to gaining himself a successful career in employment. He saw himself walking into a well-paid position in an economics or management consultancy firm and his arrogant nature considered himself too educated and superior to accept a more menial role. So apart from a brief stint working for a London-based economics firm, which had ended quite quickly, Jeremy had had no other meaningful employment. Granted, he'd been for several job interviews, but he'd never managed to get past the interview stages at these. It was almost as if the interviewers just felt there was something not quite right about him. By the beginning of 1998, he was back home in Kent with his parents, at pretty much of a loose end. He had aspirations of becoming a teacher, but he didn't seem to do anything about it. He seemed to instead spend most of his time hanging around the house, either in front of the TV or at his desk, composing his many letters to Sarah Lockett. During the trial, the court heard that Dyer had also done something similar before, to an ex-girlfriend of his, a German student named Sabine Herrian, who he met as an undergraduate whilst at Essex University in 1992. Dyer admitted in court stalking Sabine in a similar way to that of Sarah Lockett, and after their relationship broke up, for reasons that are unclear, Dyer even followed Sabine to Glasgow in order to take the same master's degree at Strathclyde University. Given evidence at his trial, Miss Herrian said that Dyer had several times expressed his interest in serial killers to her, but she thought nothing of this as the British were fascinated by true crime stories. Say nothing there like? But although this behaviour and harassment obviously unnerved her, she told the jury at his trial that she didn't think him capable of violence. He didn't condemn it though, because the court then heard that Dyer had described the murder of BBC TV presenter Jill Dando as Great, I was hoping a stalker would kill a celebrity, and it was even better than it was a newsreader, and said that every celebrity needed a stalker. Sarah Lockett, who'd bravely appeared to give evidence each day of the trial, explained to the court that at first she tried to ignore and brush off the constant letters and gifts and calls from Dyer, but became more fearful when he began turning up at the studios, and when the sick references to Jill Dando began to constantly appear. She told the court, It was terrifying because I'm in exactly the same position Jill was. I'm a news presenter, and what was he planning for me? Anyone can follow you. Addressing Dyer upon sentencing, presiding judge Susan Hamilton QC told him it was unfortunate that the police had not been involved in the capacity they were at an earlier stage because the 80 letters he'd sent to Miss Lockett between May 1998 and June 1999 had been unwarranted and unpleasant. Many contained ghoulish and frightening references. Judge Hamilton further said, Shortly after you started writing, which at first was anonymous, the letters became overtly sexual and in a crude and obtrusive way. A lot of the correspondence contained rambling nonsense, but it became increasingly unpleasant and sinister. At no time has there been a slightest hint of any care, concern or affection for the subject of this correspondence. No woman wants to receive letters with articles and with constant references to stalking. The ultimate in distasteful references were those relating to the death of Jill Dando 
and your obvious glee in making comparisons between Miss Lockett and Jill Dando on their profession. It would have been impossible for her to tell if you were a timid individual or a mad axe murderer. This type of offence is particularly alarming for the victim because in this case the victim had never had any contact with you. It was not someone with whom you'd had a relationship, it was just someone you'd picked on because you'd seen them on the television. You are an extremely weird young man. Dyer was then remanded in custody until the 10th of January 2000, awaiting the results of psychiatric reports. When he reappeared before Judge Hamilton in January, he was sentenced to two and a half years imprisonment for his campaign of harassment and had a lifelong ban imposed upon him preventing him from having any future contact whatsoever with Sarah Lockett or approaching within half a mile of her home or workplace. He served 15 months of his sentence at Her Majesty's Prison Elmley in Sheerness in North Kent before being released with conditions of his probation upon release being that he seeks psychiatric help. Although pre-sentencing reports found that Dyer had no predominant or debilitating psychiatric conditions, he was found to have traces of a narcissistic, possibly schizophrenic personality. His obsessive behaviour had been generated by his poor social and emotional skills, which in turn had increased his narcissism. His attentions were focused into projects, which he became so intensely involved in that there was no room in his life for anything else, his pursuits of Sarah being one such project. Sarah Lockett shortly afterwards left Meridian Television to freelance work in media, which she remains doing to this day, and in 2002, following Dyer's release, she gave an interview to the Evening Standard newspaper. She said, The police warned me that he was being released. The first week was very bad. I thought, right, how quickly could he be at my home? The Crown Prosecution Service had accidentally given him my home address, so he could have just turned up on my doorstep. I still lock every door and check the back seat of my car before I get in, but the fear is fading, especially since we moved house. I'm still working in television, I enjoy the job, but I've realised you just have to be careful. There's a lifetime ban on his contacting me in any way. He said that because he was my stalker, our names will always be linked. But I don't care what he's thinking, sitting in his parents' home in Kent, as long as he leaves me alone. I want to let other victims know that it's not their fault that you don't have to put up with it. But I do wonder if I'm doing the right thing talking about it. It might incense him, it might leap out from behind a car one day, I might live to regret it. But you can't live life in the shadows. You can't indeed, and nor should you have to. I first read about the case of Jeremy Dyer and Sarah Lockett many years ago now, shortly after Dyer was released from his prison sentence for his harassment campaign, and over the years it's one that's always stuck with me, so I thought, this is one tale that has to be told on the show. I found the extracts from the letters that were available, and what were reproduced throughout this episode are only a selection and perhaps the most subtle of these letters. I found them a fascinating glimpse into the mindset of someone with a fixation such as Dyer's, and how the innermost thoughts of such a person are put down into long rambling diatribes of what boils down to nonsense and smut basically. But that's not to say this is an unintelligent guy that we're talking about, I mean he was educated to master's degree level after all, he'd never come to police attention beforehand, by all accounts he had a good relationship with his parents, He'd even had a girlfriend previously, 
but he seemed to have all of the social skills, full life and pleasantries of a wet fag packet, didn't he? There's obviously something missing from a person's life if a celebrity, an unattainable figure, strikes a chord in them the same as you would have if you have a significant other and becomes the all-encompassing focus of their attention. I mean, I'm sure we all have a celebrity crush, right? I know a fellow host who's quite a big fan of actress Eva Green, for example, mentioning no names like. And myself, personally, I quite like Kate Beckinsale and Amy Acker from the TV show Person of Interest. Wow, yeah. But I've not written to either or sent them a picture of me with my head removed from the photograph because bloody hell, there's fancying someone and then there's writing more than 80 letters to them mentioning such earth-shattering things as you've just had a Mr. Kipling's apple pie to in the next breath talking about murder and necrophilia and how nice the jelly bumps are. Well, it's just miles apart, isn't it, really? I also think that Dyer is a dangerous man indeed. I say is, not was, because I don't believe that an obsessive nature such as his can be turned on its head throughout eight months' imprisonment. Perhaps hospitalisation would have been a better solution than prison here. I mean, after all, he was described as displaying notions of narcissism and schizophrenia, which is all apparent from the excerpts of his letters which are available through research and have been repeated here. His massively inflated ego and his ability or willingness to switch to a different character whilst writing, a five-year-old or the alter egos that he mentioned such as the cleaner or Mr Chuckles. Certainly that says to me that there's some serious issues there, isn't there? I know his harassment consisted largely of letters and gifts, but he was trying his hardest to escalate this in my opinion, and ultimately he would have, because one-sided contact would have plateaued for him. I mean, he'd started making his way to the studios and he tried desperately to find out Sarah's home address. And I believe that if travelling sizable differences had been more readily and easily available to him, say, if he could have drove, for example, then it most likely would have been serious and perhaps tragic consequences. Because if he could have followed Sarah home, I'm in no doubt that he would have. He wouldn't have been able to resist it, would he? And what would he have done? Well, it's quite chilling to think about, isn't it? It's easy to dismiss off people who do this kind of thing as just being a bloody weirdo. And that's me putting it politely, really. But in this case, yeah, very weird guy, but completely in control of what he was doing. Completely. And determined by it, in fact. Imagine the determination it must take to write more than 80 letters to someone and not getting a single personal response back. Apart from a put officially, but very politely, please piss off you are bothering me now type letter and then an again polite but direct warning that if this harassment doesn't cease police will be involved. The enjoyment's clearly in the writing for him isn't it with every word and phrase being carefully and deliberately chosen and the effect that Dyer imagined his letters and gifts would have on Sarah. If she'd said to him okay yeah let's meet I'll come to you later today There's no way on earth that he would have agreed to it, would he? It would be out of his control, and for Dyer, that would be his fantasy becoming reality, which I doubt he would have been able to handle because he didn't have the skills to. I believe that him including his address with the correspondence, eventually, was a mix of a couple of things, though. Ultimately, it probably would have been a great thrill to him if Sarah had written back to him at some point. It's highly unlikely, yes, isn't it? But equally, by giving her his name and address, in his mind gave him the allowance to carry on his campaign of correspondence, 
because if he got out of hand, then she knew where he lived and could report him. It almost justified this harassment in his mind. Look how often he offered her solutions for him to quit his campaign, but with no real intention whatsoever of stopping. Following his release from his sentence, there are no reports of exactly what or the extent of any post-release treatment Dyer underwent to address his behaviour. Condition? Not quite sure what to label it as best here, really. And he's never reportedly come to police attention again. Hopefully his time in prison was used in reflection of his actions, and if he embraced the psychiatric help that I think he clearly needed, and was indeed required to seek by the court, then perhaps today he's a functioning and productive member of society. Perhaps? Yes, yeah, he's got a lifetime restraining order against Sarah Lockett, but if the issues that led to his campaign against her haven't been addressed and dealt with, and there's no genuine remorse from the man, then Will Dyer have just substituted Sarah with someone else, perhaps having learned some hard and valuable lessons about getting caught doing so, and he continues writing his weird sadistic letters to a poor, pre-chosen target to this day. I have great sympathy for anyone who's the target of a campaign of harassment like that, and believe me, when I was reading up on some cases, this is a tame one compared to some that I learned of especially the one that will be the focus of a future episode. I'm not detracting anything from Sarah's ordeal by saying that, because make no mistake, that's what it was, an ordeal, and still is to an extent. I mean, Sarah will always have to be extra careful, extra security conscious and vigilant from now on, won't she? And she'll always have that fear in the back of her mind about bumping into Dyer. But today there's that much more legislation in place and threats such as these are taken so much more seriously. It's just a shame though that it's taken several tragic events to reach this legislation and the question remains, are the laws concerning behaviour such as this that are in place today, are they enough? How often do you read of harassment cases that go too far, even in some cases we've looked at on the show before where it's been reported, but action has come too late for the person concerned? I ask you, what more is needed? I'd love as always hearing your thoughts about points such as these, which I'm sure invoke interesting debate, and the episode which I hope that you found an interesting one, and perhaps, and I'd hope not for anybody listening, but one that may resonate with a few people. The thread will be up there in the Facebook group as you hear this episode, so if you'd be interested in sharing any views there, I look forward to reading and responding to them before. As I've said a few times here, we will return to the subject of stalking sometime later this series. If not through the Facebook group, then I can be reached through my other social media that if you don't follow me already on, you can find in links to in the episode show notes as ever, should you wish to of course. The link to the Patreon site for the show can be found there also if you don't already and you fancy some extra enthusiast, where amongst other things there are now 18 bonus episodes of the show available for supporters to hopefully enjoy. For less each month than it costs to nick two supermarket trolleys and it saves me from eating cat food all the time. I don't eat cat food really. So before I finish up here this week, I do have a promo for a show for you guys but by now I reckon it should already be a familiar one to a lot of listeners. It's for a UK-based show called True Crime Fix. Now I highly recommend it. Its host, Stevie G, tells some fantastically researched tales and I've been especially impressed with his choice of cases. 
a couple that I'd considered myself for show episodes, and I may still do somewhere down the line at a much later date, who knows. It's always good to hear a different spin rather than your own on a case, isn't it really? True Crime Fix is available from the usual places that you guys grab your podcast from, and here's Stevie G himself to let you know some more. Cheers for that Stevie, that's True Crime Fix there. Go and grab yours today and please show it some love by leaving a kind and honest review on iTunes or finding the show under the same moniker over social media. I'll wrap up now and crack on with researching yet another case, but I'll be back next week with another episode of the show that I look forward to you guys joining me for. Until we next speak then, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall catch you again very soon. Thanks very much for joining me today all. Take care and goodbye for now.